words of warning and his prayers to them. And this morning, we are reminded in verse 7 of what you have just heard read of our current theological climate as well. This text strikes me as so immediately accessible in our current climate to jump. It, it, we need to maintain a balance of recognizing the text within its own historical context for me because it seems so immediately relevant. I could just skip the historical and jump right into this very moment with this particular passage, thinking this way, at least for me. I would suggest to each of us that we are surrounded right now. I mean, turn on the TV, download a, a podcast, look at a standard Christian bookstore and go down the aisle, and you will find, I trust, as we feast a regular diet on the text of Holy Scripture, you will see we are surrounded about by theological charlatans. That is, we are surrounded. Go, go, go in any popular context. And those rising most often to gain quick influence are those who promise to provide us, the church, God's people, with something along the lines of this radical new insights. The key word being radical. I mean, how many times can we use the word Radical. Think of Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Absent there the term radical. Nonetheless, it could not have been more radical. Just the text is enough. But not so, say the charlatans. We need radical new insights. They promise then, along with the back of the book cover or listening to the podcast, to lead us into, quote, deeper mysteries regarding what was previously confessed as truth. We say something along these lines in the current conversation theologically. I already knew that. And they say, no, 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 no. Not like I have found. I have discovered something, again, must I remind you, radical. Moreover, we should be clear, most often terms that we see, exciting, maybe, yes, but if we look past them, we see terms like deeper, more complex, profound, We see these as code terms for otherwise incoherent, subjective, obscure, ahistorical, otherwise unbiblical, wanna-be theological garbage. That is what's at the substantive level. Indeed, we look at the book, and at the end, if we looked at the text of Scripture and considered it thoughtfully, we would find the book to be, the podcast to be, the new radical insight to be, indeed, complex, unclear, biblically incoherent. Yet it is sold to us, it is spoken to us by one or two leaders who then get together and decide 
They will form a new coalition, a new group, a new idea, and what we need is them and their radical new insights if we care at all to really know what God meant. I trust I'm not speaking to people who have not seen this scene. It's everywhere. To chart Redeemer's course, our course together as the people of God, the question is, how do we, the church of Christ, quite simply, how do we navigate such troubling theological waters? How do we navigate them? When they come at us from every group that forms, every coalition that is substantiated, every new doctrinal statement that's put forward, every new radical insight, every new profound mystery finally unlocked, praise the Lord. How do we maneuver or navigate such troubling waters? How do we clearly identify together the church of Christ? How do we clearly identify proper teachers in the church? along with proper teaching. How do we do so? It is upon us in this hour, I hope not to find me walking out the door, collective hour I mean, it is upon us in the church currently in this cultural setting to think clearly about teaching Scripture and the teachers who perform the teaching, and suggest to us it is the thoughts of Scripture. Consider the historical context within which our text that we'll look at, verse 7, is embedded. The historical setting is such that the church here, which is the apostles' concern for them, is they are attracted as well to traditions and teachings that are not in stride with the Word of God and the preaching of their former leaders. The threat is that they will go back under the Old Covenant to something that they can taste, touch, sense, and feel rather than that surrounding cloud of witnesses that we possess, those who saw a better and a more lasting city. The challenge, as we read earlier in the sermon to the Hebrews, was that of Moses as he considered, it is better to suffer with Israel than to go back to Egypt and its pleasures. The challenge is always there to walk by faith or return to what is a bit easier. That is things I can touch, taste, feel, sense, observe in the moment, giving me a sense of clarity. So the challenge is those come along, those, again, theological charlatans, those with mischievous aspects to their ministry, hidden agendas, speaking to the church even in its historical setting. To be sure, the sales pitch was quite a bit different. I don't think any of us right now are struggling with going back to a temple complex, considering sacrifice and its bloody service, that we could observe it and feel a sense of faithful anchoring. But just because the sales pitch is different in our current context. The substance of many of the podcasts or books is the same. It is join in these radical new insights 
I have discovered something profound. And the teachings that tempt us, those things that gain energy and momentum right away, are not in stride necessarily with the Word of God. Neither with the preaching ministry of those who have faithfully taught us the Word of God. The exhortation that comes historically and as well this morning from verse 7, the exhortation of the apostle to each one of us here this morning to the church of Christ in our culture. His exhortation is to remember. Not the power of the new and novel. Remember, there's a lot of energy behind finding a new mystery. A church will grow faster than you can handle it if you just lay hold of my seven principles that I've discovered. If you channel the right energy, there's a book coming out that is, I don't know, I better not. Let's just skip it. Nonetheless, (laughs) you'll know it when it comes out, and it is utterly ridiculous. You just see in the title that there is a search, there is a constant search to find something that is new. Being spun as somehow new is relevant, old is not. We need relevancy or everybody will leave. So let's come up with something cool and spin it as true. And the apostle is saying directly the opposite. He is calling us not to remember the power of the new and the novel, but he is calling us to remember the former men and ministry of the word of God. This morning, along with this exhortation, I'd like to consider the importance of godly leadership in two particular considerations, according to two particular considerations. That is, the importance of godly leadership in two particular considerations from this text. I'll state them up front, and then we'll begin to work our way through the text. The importance of godly leadership this morning from the first consideration is the consideration of personal history. The importance of godly leadership from the consideration of personal history. And secondly, we will cover the importance of godly leadership from the consideration of public testimony. The importance of godly leadership. Look there as he exhorts us again along the lines of remembering, not the new and the novel, but he driven on by the days that have former past that we have laid hold of by faith. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The first consideration is a consideration of personal history. And I think here what the apostle is driving at is that it makes clear the appropriate place for theological confusion is for each of us in such a context is to call to mind the doctrinal boundaries once provided to us by those who taught us the Holy Scriptures. 
Remember, there are new things to consider all the time. People passing through. Snake oil theological salesmen. The elixir that will save your life is this new radical thought. And the apostle is saying, how does a church maneuver? Those who are speaking things that are not in stride with once has been delivered. How do we maneuver such troubling water? In the place of theological confusion, it is appropriate for each of us and collectively together to call to mind the doctrinal boundaries that have already been provided us by those who first taught us and laid that foundation with us in the Holy Scripture. Perhaps this point, you're asking the question, so what if I am in a place of trying to discern what is appropriate theological, what is biblically true in this ridiculous book that I am reading, and I am being drawn to concern. How do I know? How, how do I know? It just seems, how do I know that this is right, or this is right, this is more accurate? How do I know to take this and run it through this grid? How do I know this grid was right? Where do I go in this troubling water? How do I navigate all of the teachers that pop up, all of the groups that form, all of the new coalitions? How do I know? The apostle puts forward first, consider those who first laid your doctrinal boundaries. Draw your mind back into remembrance of those who laid the foundation for you doctrinally. The question is, what if those who laid this first boundary, or set the first boundary, laid the first foundation, have proven to be utterly false? Do I just go back? Is he telling me, no matter where you've come, always go back to those who first taught you the Scriptures, in this sense, making an argument of chronology? Saying, you know, whoever got first dibs on each of you in the crowd, never mind what I'm saying this morning, go back, all the way back. Oh, I hope not. Wasn't that what you're saying? It's based simply on chronology. Remember your former leaders, those who first laid the foundation. Absolutely not. First could be now. The first foundation that we have could be being laid now. Also, what what, what is the foundation? How do we know? What what is the foundation? Do I know? So if I'm going to go in chronology of event, when I'm steering through or navigating difficult theological waters, such as now, and the things that come at me all the time, and the new books that are always published, and all the new radical insights I need to maneuver through. If I just go back in chronology, is that sufficient? I'm making the argument, no, no. Chronology is not simply it. Then what is it? Well, the chronology is tied to the clarity of doctrine. How so? The doctrinal boundaries that are first given us must be those doctrinal boundaries that were faithful to two things. So that is, again, it's not strictly chronology. If we grew up in a church that was utterly theologically incoherent or aberrant, do we just simply go back? Because they were first there, right? You're following my argument. I'm suggesting 
No. So how do we determine the first theological boundary in our life? If it's not strictly on chronology, what is it based upon? I'm suggesting you it is based upon faithfulness in the mark of those men and their ministry in two categories, of which we are provided right here in the sermon. Category number one, where we know, again, where we can kind of run this current theological climate through the grid of what was first provided for us. How do we know what the first provisions that we ought to continually go back to are? They must have been, number one, faithful, number one, to the gospel. If that early chronology was not faithful to the gospel, and we have since learned that that early day and that early set boundary was not faithful to the gospel, it is not our first boundary that we return to. The first boundary we are returning to, the first grid that we are calling to mind is a grid or a boundary, a man and his ministry that was faithful, number one, to the gospel. How do I know that from this very sermon? Go with me back to chapter 2. Go with me back to chapter 2 to see, indeed, we are calling to mind, we are remembering Not the power of new and novel, but we are called to remember the former men in ministry of the Word of God in our lives. Not just because they were there in time, but because they were there in time with a sound orthodoxy proven out by faithfulness to the gospel. If you're there in chapter 2, he's reminded us already of this concern as new doctrines pop up, as new coalitions are formed. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. This is what we must pay closer attention to. This is what we must recall. This is what we must remember. It was first declared by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. Pay closer attention attention. Remember and call to mind those men and ministry, that foundation that was laid, that each one has heard, was attested to us by those who heard from the Lord. Pay close attention to the gospel. Call to mind that foundation. When you are reading a book, hearing a podcast, if we were to read a book, let's say that's 230 pages, let's give it even 200 pages, and we see the name Jesus one time around page 103, a book that is supposed to transform our lives, we're seeing a red flag. Call to mind. Those men in ministry, that boundary and foundation that's been laid that is solidly 
built upon the gospel. Not radical new insights where Jesus mysteriously appears and disappears within a paragraph of 200 pages. Or a podcast that is radical. But Jesus is absent. And so too is the work of the gospel. His victory announcement. How do we navigate these waters? We call to mind those men and ministries marked by faithfulness to the word. In number one, the gospel. Pay close attention to the gospel. Second category given us in this sermon. That again, we simply aren't going back in chronology to the first church we were raised in, the second church, the third church, we're thinking more doctrinally of the men and the message that came in those earlier periods that I'm sifting current theological confusion through. I'm calling to mind those who were faithful to the gospel and secondly, those who laid a solid foundation of the structural components of Christianity for me. What do you mean structural components? Those who are clearly faithful to the fundamentals of orthodoxy. Those who are clearly faithful to the structural components upon which Christianity is built. Again, I cannot be transformed apart from the word of God. When what is being offered me in current conversation lacks the word of God, it lacks transforming power. I call to mind then, in a setting aside of this, former men in their ministry that was clear, articulate, built upon the word of God. How so? Look over in chapter 5 if you see the same reminder pastorally as the apostle writes again, chapter 5, verse 12, exhorting us, call to mind this material. Those men who laid this foundation. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need someone to teach you again. You see, this is calling to mind those men and their ministry who did teach the basic principles of the oracles of God. Those who laid the solid foundation upon which my faith is built. The ABC, structural components of Christianity, Call them to mind. Just because something is cool, appears radical, promises something deep and complex, remember, they are oftentimes for all of us incoherent, theologically false. Subjective and obscure. They lack transforming power. Just because it'll make you cooler doesn't mean you'll be transformed. Saying, don't, 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 don't. 
Don't, don't, don't listen. Return to those men in their ministry that laid that solid foundation for you. What was the foundation? What if this church, the foundation, whenever that foundation was laid, it was built on two things quite clearly from the sermon, the gospel and its purity and the structural components of your faith. Those who spent time discipling, instructing, and teaching return as you navigate through the waters of current theological climate. I read for you a brief picture of this in time, if it could become clearer to you by this little historical insight from Irenaeus. That is, he was a minister in the second century, and this little clip here is a writing of him recalling his boyhood days when he received instruction in the gospel from Polycarp. Now, Polycarp Historically speaking, so there's Irenaeus, and his account here is being read. His account of his day sitting under Polycarp, who Polycarp being martyred around 155, 156, was a direct disciple, as we can tell from history from the Apostle John. So here's Irenaeus speaking again in this picture of what it looks like as we see a historical example of someone maneuvering through the second century as a minister and considering the, thir- the current theological controversies on the table, and then what is it that he is doing but recalling to mind the faithfulness of the men of the ministry of their word that has been laid for them, as he recalls his days sitting under Polycarp. I remember the events of that time more clearly than those of recent years. For what a boy learns, growing with their mind, becomes joined with it. So I am able to describe the very place in which the blessed Polycarp sat as he discoursed. I recall his goings out and his comings in and the manner of his life. I even recall his physical appearance and his discourses to the people and the accounts which he gave of his intercourse with John and with others who had seen the Lord. And as he remembered their words, and what he heard from them concerning the Lord, you see his ministry? It isn't like, hey, Tuesdays with Polycarp. It is zeroed in. He's teaching me not what he felt, or what was radical and new. It's guaranteed to make me cool. What was relevant but he remembered their words. He remembered from them what he learned concerning the Lord, concerning his miracles and his teaching, having received them from the eyewitnesses of the word of life. Polycarp related all things in harmony with the Scriptures. It's the mark of his ministry. Polycarp related all things in harmony with the Scriptures. These things being told me by the mercy of God. I listened to them attentively, noting them down, not on paper, but in my heart. And continually, through God's grace, I recall them faithfully to my mind. This is what the writer is getting at. Remember Call to mind those who faithfully labored in Scripture. Those who truly spoke 
the word of God to you as you navigate theologically aberrant preachers and their theology. But there's this second consideration. I said this morning I would like to consider, two the importance of godly leadership. One, in the consideration of personal ministry or personal history, rather. And this leads us then from Polycarp into the second consideration this morning, and that is the consideration or the importance of godly leadership in the consideration of public testimony. How do we get there? Look at the text. Remember your leaders. Call them to mind. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Not simply chronology, but those who were faithful to the word of God. That being clear articulation of the gospel, chapter 2. And the structural components of discipleship and orthodoxy, chapter 5. Remember them as they led you according to those two components. And then here is the second consideration. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is what we see once again in this historical count of Irenaeus. As he says, I am able to describe the very place in which the blessed Polycarp sat as he discoursed. I recall his goings out and his comings in. I recall the manner of his life. So it is, as a writer or the apostle to the Hebrews speaks to us this morning, we are to consider the theological instruction that we are receiving in correspondence with its life outcomes for those who are doing the teaching. I just made a statement of which I am relatively uncomfortable with. I think everybody that travels the road of ministry recognizes their insufficiency and is concerned about such statements in the text of Scripture. If we went to the pastoral epistles and looked at the qualifications, rarely will you find one who jumps up and says, that's me. Wait until my local church gets a hold of me. It's around. Maybe we've seen it in seminary a few times, but it's rare. That was a joke, but anyway. It's tricky. Because certainly, as you've seen my life and the manner of my living before you, been in my home, seen my family, and uh, the outcomes of the way of life of what our teaching ministry here at Redeemer does then bring about, you see that there are shortcomings. There are things you certainly would do differently. There are considerations from time to time about perhaps some of what is called the outcomes of our manner of life. And here the apostle is clearly denying that there is any allowance for an ongoing, and I think this is a critical term in the sentence, that he is denying the allowance or any allowance for an ongoing division between teaching and living. He's denying that there is is an allowance for an ongoing ministry where a man stands and says and then leaves and acts and does that are in utter contradiction. 
there is a receptiveness on your part to the truth that is being spoken on my part in the way that together in some sense of harmony we recognize that I am not in utter contradiction to what is being spoken. However, I would also caveat that the truth of the Lord does stand even if I fall. It isn't right because I'm saying it. It's objectively right, objectively true, because God has said so. So there is a way in which a minister does serve this bridge between thus saith the Lord and his own ministry to those who do hear and sit and listen, and they are to rightfully consider the accuracy of the minister's theology based upon some coordination that is clearly identifiable between what he said and what he does. There is a coordination there. Nonetheless, when there is a breakage and it is unidentifiable, this man that we saw on Tuesday from what we heard on Sunday that doesn't make Sunday somehow untrue. It just means that the servant has been untruthful in his manner of presentation of himself. It is a challenge in ministry, but one by grace that the Lord is gracious to perform, that together we walk in harmony congregants and their pastors by considering the public testimony, his public preaching, and how this forms a godly outcome in the manner of his living. There's a graciousness I know that you extend to me and a graciousness I extend to you as we walk together in harmony, those things being that they are not in great, clear contradiction to the truth that we sing and speak on Sunday. Carl Truman, a church historian, one of my kind of favorites, he writes here and says, quote, there are plenty of men around who have their heads full of theological knowledge, but knowledge is not the same as the kind of maturity and reputation that the New Testament sees as non-negotiable. Questions of theological knowledge are important. But this is no either-or situation, but rather a both-and. Potential elders and pastors need to know their theology. Right? That gets back to point number one. They need to know their theology It needs to be well articulated so that another might hear it and receive it and ponder it, obediently follow after it. They need to know it. It's not like all the nice guys just get put in place. There is an appropriate level of theological knowledge that goes with remembering the men and their ministry of the word. There is a coherence, a confidence in the word of God that must be a mark of an elder Potential elders need to know their theology, but they also need to be of good reputation. 
Their reputation ought be upright, both within and without the church. They ought to treat their wives with respect. They ought to have children. We're not troublemakers. They ought to show care for people. Eldership should be a joy. But it is also hard work and brings with it immense responsibility. I think we get an insight here from the text of calling to mind your leaders, those who have that sense of theological awareness, those who spoke to you the word of God, that marked by faithfulness, fidelity to the gospel, not the radical, the gospel, not profound mysteries that they alone can unlock for you, but those who quite clearly walk through the text of scripture and are found helpful and faithful in that regard and the call of the immense responsibility that goes with remembering your leaders is the call upon the leader to live in such a way that the outcome of their teaching is manifested in a faithful lifestyle consider these men consider the outcome of their way of life And as Carl Truman says, it is hard work and brings immense responsibility. Why? Because of the last statement of the text this morning for us. What is the weight immediately in verse 7 upon elders, pastors, teachers, those who lead you through speaking the word of God to you, those who are up in such a manner that those are under their charge, considering the outcome of their way of life. What is the burden to bear? What is the immense responsibility that an elder carries? It is the call to imitate their faith. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider it. And upon considering imitate their faith. Again, many statements here that are challenging to elders and pastors and those who lead through the preaching of the word. It is a call here to follow their example. How? How are you to imitate their faith? Look at verse 7. It is as you hear it in their teaching. As you consider Redeemer, as you consider your iPod, as or uh, 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 iTunes, I don't know, no, I'm looking for a different word. Your podcast, thank you. I came up with that on my own. No help from the audience there. Don't worry about it, I got it, I'll get there. As you're considering and navigating these theological troubling waters, charlatans, snake oil salesmen, theologically, as you're, re- as you're considering your channels. Remember your leaders according to what? As they spoke to you the word of God. It was, it was clear. It was manifest. It was laid bare before me. The word. Consider the outcome of their way of life. How so? By imitating their faith of what I heard and what I saw in their lives. Verse 8 then rings the final death knell for these charlatans or their theological shenanigans. 
We look at verse 8, and it destroys novelty teaching. It's empty promises of transformation by pointing us yet again to the true and sole object of our faith. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The church navigates troubling, false theological water by considering Jesus. Who, yesterday, was the right and true object of their faith. He was true. He was right. He is fit. And he alone is the object of the church's faith yesterday in history. He who remains that same sole right object of our faith today. And will remain forever the sole rightful object of our faith. How do we maneuver? How do we clarify? How do we know we're on the right theological pathway? When Christ stands at the center, His gospel is declared, His teaching is clear and consistent, and He is always upheld as the sole and rightful object of our faith. Then, we don't need something new, something mind-blowingly radical. We need Christ and His Word clearly put forward. In sum, we consider men and their ministry in light of its faithfulness to the unchanging truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will enable us, ministers at Redeemer,